Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Numbers chapter 13. I want to speak to you this morning on a topic that's dear to my heart uh, here in the last year called a Legacy Lifestyle. And uh, we are starting our next series uh, next week, Christ in the Old Testament. And we had a week break in between, so I was scheduled to speak, so I get to speak on whatever I want. And so this is just a topic that um, I've been mulling over for quite a while. And I want to start in Numbers 13. We're going to be in a number of passages today. But I really want to encourage people here to live a life of legacy. If you're in Numbers 13, we'll start out. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether they're trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes, so they went up and spied out the land. So if you're familiar with this story... Uh, you, may under, you may know that this is when the children of Israel uh, escaped slavery. They're in the wilderness there. They're coming up to the promised land, and they're going to go spy this land out. Keep in mind, this land has been promised uh, to the children of Israel. God's going to go before them. He's going to conquer the enemy. But they say, hey, before we go in, let's send some spies. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Because you can hear when all the people hear how big and bad these people are, they get afraid. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. They are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Isn't that stunning? Moses just delivers them from slavery. And they're like, let's can that guy. Let's elect a new president. And let's go back into slavery. Because we don't want to get killed by these giants. God's pretty ticked. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, 
And they said to the congregation, The land which we pass through to spy that is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, this is what God thinks, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? The very God who delivered them, they no longer believed in. In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, If you do that, God, the Egyptians are going to hear of it. For you brought this people in your might from among them, and they'll tell the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. But if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you've promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He'll by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord, what you said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. A brutal, brutal story about how quick it is for us to believe in God and to lose our belief and to face the punishment of God and not pass on a legacy. If you've been reading anything about the Christian faith in the news, you know this, we are in crisis right now. People are leaving the faith at numbers never before seen in this country. In 1986, 10% of this country claimed no religious affiliation, we are 33 years later, and now 39% are claiming no religious affiliation. If that trend continues, within 100 years of this country, we will go from a 90% believing country to a 90% non-believing country. It's a crisis. While we're all focused on the front door and reaching people who don't know Jesus, we're actually losing thousands through the back door of people who are losing their faith in Jesus. Why are they leaving? 60% say because they've stopped believing in the teachings of the religion. And a third of them are saying, yeah, we were religious and we went to church, but my family was never really practicing it. So in other words, they're saying, I no longer believe it or I, no longer saw, I, I never really saw it. So it doesn't seem to me to be substantive. This is, this is bad, folks. It's really bad. Why is it so bad? The number one job of the people of God since the beginning of time is to pass on the teachings of God to the next generation. We tend to call this discipleship. Most people think of discipleship as something you do to a new Christian, but discipleship is the entire process of passing on the faith to the next generation. We can postulate about why we think that's happening. In, in my 
non-scientific survey, I would say, we probably have fallen prey to the good old lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes is we have wanted to be something that we were never created to be. We wanted political power, and so we put a ton of energy into uh, garnering a political force to elect the right people to office. This has never been our mission. Or we've wanted credibility in the eyes of the world, so we've lost our edge. Or there's the lust of the flesh, maybe just the fact that we live in the richest country in the world, that, you know, we're so inundated with this pursuit of riches. I mean, it is hard to get on anybody's calendar anymore. You know why? We're so busy, and work is so long, and we got two people not having to work, where we used to have one in a, ho- in a household. Or the pride of life. Really, in the, in the clergy training world, you are somebody based on the number of people that come hear you talk on Sunday morning. And so we have turned pastors into Tony Robbins motivational speakers. We have thought big churches are better. We have lost our shepherds. So we are in crisis. So I'm going to throw out an idea to you this morning that is the job of every follower of God to live a legacy lifestyle by passing on their faith to the next generation before they die. That is everyone in this room's job. That is your job to do. I'm using the word here, generation. Let's talk about generation. What's a generation? A generation is the period of time. There's tons of definitions about it. Even in Scripture, you can see different uses of the word. Um, But it is the period of time between the birth of a parent and the birth of their children. Based on our lifespans, a generation is roughly 20 to 30 years. And we serve a God who is a God of the generations, He is not phased by generations passing and generations leaving. God says uh, in Psalm 145, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Psalm 102, You, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. One thing we know this, there will always be some people on this earth who believe in this generational God. He is a generational God. The bad news is, is you are not. You are going to die. You are going to expire. Ecclesiastes 1.4 says, A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You are going to be here for a short time, and you will be forgotten. Let me just do a little test here. I'm going to say the name of a relative, and I want you to Say their name out loud back to me. What was the name of your father? What was the name of your father's father? What was the name of your father's father's father? What was the name? If, if you don't know, don't say it. You're screwing up my illustration. So don't say I don't know. What's the name of your great great grandfather? Send him out of the room. (laughs) You don't know. Let me ask you this. What were the values of your great-grandfather? Have you read his book? Have you read what he stood for? Have you been able to find anything more than a photo on Ancestry.com? That's your future. In four generations, nobody is going to know your name, even your blood relatives. Okay, Your generation is going to pass. So you need to pass on 
God to the next generation and live a legacy lifestyle. I'm reading a book right now called How to Live Forever. And he talks about this idea of passing something on to the generations. He calls it generativity. You generate something for the next generation. The Bible talks about this all over, by the way. Psalm 71, Oh God, from my youth you've taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me. Until when I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those to come. Psalm 78, you should read this in your devotions this week. A beautiful passage. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This is our job, to proclaim to the generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. Well, where do you do this? I say you do it in the church. In the church. That's the greatest CG of Providence, by the way. 29th and Humboldt. Antoinette doesn't believe me. Um, you pass on the legacy of God in the church. I believe, I am so in love with the church because I believe it is the greatest idea in the history of the world. And I, believe me, I can be cynical about the church, but fundamentally I am a core believer that is the apple of God's eye and it is the greatest thing going. It is actually set up for generational legacy. Where else do you go to an institution in our culture that will walk with you from cradle to grave. You're not going to get that at the local school. You're not going to get that at the Rotary Club, right? There's no other organization like it. It is set up to be a perpetual institution for the people of God. So today, on those values on the wall, we're going to talk about loving our church family together. I am calling all of you to pass on the legacy of faith to the next generation. Even Jesus' last words were this, hey, I'm leaving. Take everything I've given you and go teach those to others and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. It happens in the church. Who's supposed to do it? Everybody in this room. Okay, so here we have Moses. He's bringing the people up to the promised land. They send the spies in. The spies come back. The people revolt. They no longer believe in the God who delivered them. God says, then you're all going to die. They all die out over the next 40 years in the wilderness, and then Moses has round two. He goes to the people, and he says, now, we're going to actually go into the promised land now, and now Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy. And he says in chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Proverbs 4, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one on the side of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth, do not forsake her, she will keep you, love her and she will guard you. This is our job, to pass on the faith. What has us so busy in our lives that we cannot find a way to teach our children the ways of God? Believe me, I'm a parent of four boys. I have to ask myself that question all the time. It is hard to garner them for family dinner. 
let alone for me to have the responsibility to teach them the ways of God as we walk by the way and we ride in the car and we go on trips. We are talking about the Lord. Parents, I'm just saying you have a huge responsibility. And if you're too busy, reorient your life so that you can pass on the faith to your kids. I, uh, we have family dinners now on Monday night. And one of our sons asked if he could bring a friend or two to family dinner because we were making our son sit at family dinner, which was a challenge. And then his two friends, both of which were female, were so pumped they got invited to family dinner at our house. And they sat down and they said, we've never done this. They are teenagers. I said, well, how does your family do it? We just grab our food and we go to our room. recapture this as a legacy lifestyle. But here's the problem. 57% of the households in America don't have kids. Only 20% of all U.S. households have two parents and a child inside of them. So the vast majority of people, right, don't have children to raise in our culture. So when the family unit is different, some of it by design and some of it is frayed or broken, what do you need? You need an alternative community where you can pass on the faith. And God knows we have several people in our church that have uh, single people who have adopted children. Well, we need to gather around and say, hey, we're going to help pass on the faith with you, right? It was designed to be run by two people, but because of the brokenness of the world, right? This kid had nowhere to go. You took him in. That's a Jesus thing. We as a church, we're going to come around. The church is the new family of Jesus where we, we help each other pass on the faith to the next generation. How do we do it? We do it from generation to generation. Generation to generation. The Bible says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. A legacy lifestyle is say, I'm always looking for a way to learn from the generation older than me and I'm going to teach the one younger than me. So I'm going to unpack the generations in four different ways for you to look at it through the lens of where you sit on this issue. The first one's called the four stages of life. I've been studying this. The stages of life, what do we go through? The first stage is the stage from the time you were born till the time you were 20 years old. Okay? This is your time of education. You're born into the world. You observe. You imitate. You're still dependent upon others. Uh, you, uh, you're looking for external validation from your mom and dad, but you're primarily being educated. You, you mimic them, and you're growing, right? But then at the time that ends, it's time for you to go out and be on your own. We just sent one of our sons on a missions trip, and the parents all have their own, like, closed little Facebook group, and it is just hilarious for me to read it. Um, every week as these parents are letting their kids go for the first time. And, I mean, I remember at training camp, it was my daughter's uh, tent pole snapped. Satan is attacking with all of his might. And I was just like, oh, this poor child. You know, helicopter parenting to the point where they could never let go of their kid. It's time for them to move on. Then you move into the 20s and 30s. This is the time of discovery. You see your uniqueness. You actually start forming your own values and making your own decisions. 
I see this happen because a bunch of you millennials in here, your parents will come visit you and they're sniffing us out. I can tell the sniffing out conversation, you know. The dad's kind of walking up to me. He's like listening to the sermon like extra intently. You know, is, is, is my daughter okay to be here? You know, is she going to get the true Bible? All this kind of stuff. This is where, though, you, you make your own decisions. And you probably believe something different than your parents at some stage in your 20s and 30s. And you fall in love and you make mistakes and you have fun. But you also come into contact with your limitations. You realize your mom was wrong. You cannot do anything you set your mind to, right? (laughs) And you can get angry about that. And when you realize what you want to do and that you can't do it, now you move into stage three, okay? This is the 40s and 50s. This is the stage of commitment. You actually start building a legacy here. And you go from the wide world and you start to narrow your world. You narrow your opportunities of where you want to apply your time and energy. You narrow the people you want to hang with. You start blocking some people on Facebook and you're okay with it, right? (laughs) Ambition, though, usually dies somewhere in your 40s. You have this dream of what you wanted life to be, and you've realized that you're 45, and it ain't going to get there. It ain't going anywhere close. That's called the midlife crisis. That happens in your 40s. When you bounce, you no longer bounce back. I read one guy said, in your 40s, it's the time where you actually relate to the Grinch on a philosophical level. (laughs) Right? Nobody calls you young anymore. I mean, my wife and I just went to a Red Rocks concert on a date. We were yawning before the opening act. (laughs) Right? We knew, I had Googled that there was encore, there's usually two songs in this guy's encore, and we figured we could leave at the last song, skip the encore, and get in our car, and get home. Like, I never thought about skipping encores, you know? But I was like, dang, I'll get it on Spotify, but I am not going to stay. I mean, if I'd actually done it well, we just got a hotel in Morrison and said, let's skip the half hour ride home. I'm tired, you know? (laughs) This is your 40s and your 50s, but it's the time of commitment. This is really your prime, where you are really functioning at, on all cylinders. You kind of figured out what you wanted to do, and you're going after it. But you've also realized that it's not all going to be the way you thought it was going to be. But then you move into your 60s. These are your legacy years. You're aging. Your back goes out more than you do, you know? <laughs> The candles cost more than the cake, you know? (laughs) The four-year-old boy was like, hey, Mom, what's a hipster? Oh, that's somebody who goes to the thrift stores and wears thrift store clothing and thick glasses. Oh, is Grandma a hipster? You know? (laughs) You fully, in this phase, this is where I think the cultural narrative is completely jacked. Culture is going to say, this is where you relax, you retire an unbiblical concept. You, you retreat. I say this is where you actually are at your best years for giving back to the world. You are the most valuable you have ever been to the culture. And you are to fully dedicate yourself to helping the younger generations make it. It's no longer about you, though, right? 
It shifts from the time you hit 60, you're focused on the other generation saying, I'm going to help you get through this crazy mess. These are your most profitable years. So those are one way to look at the four stages of life. Another is to look at the generation you've been put into. The 0 to 20 age is now called Generation Z. Um, then we have the millennials. Okay, The millennials, contrary to popular opinion, by the way, are investing more than any previous generation. <laughs> they are the most charitable generation of any in American history. Uh, they are the largest portion of our workforce, despite what people say about millennials and work. But they are also the most stressed. They have the most staggering debt. Um, and they're in those years of trying to figure out what uh, am I created to do. Then you have Gen X, the greatest generation ever. Um, we remember where we were the first time we saw Dirty Dancing. That's, that's my generation, right? Or Top Gun. I mean, we are the most flexible generation ever. We, we, we remember when there was Ataris, and now there's online gaming. I remember in college watching the first email go out of my roommate's computer. I was like, what is that, right? We are the ones who founded Twitter and MySpace and Google. We are the Elon Musks, right? And then you have the boomers. They used to have these things called encyclopedias, right? <laughs> They used to dial zero for an operator. There was a thing uh, that you did there, right? Yeah, the rotary phone with the, the thing that went around the corner. And if somebody called your, your phone, you know, you put them on hold. They're used to screaming to get their way. That's why they hate social media, right? Until they found the caps lock button, right? Now they know how to scream on social media, right? A good church has all these generations in it. And thankfully at Providence, we have people in every single generation in this room today. And we are to learn from each other. Then by what method? We do it by mentoring. Someone who lives a legacy lifestyle is always mentoring. Well, what is mentoring? There's a ton of different definitions. Uh, my friend Pete Kettler, who lives in Highlands Ranch, he's a friend of the ministry here, wrote a book called Life on Life, The Practice of Spiritual Mentoring. If you promise me you will mentor somebody and you don't know how to do it, there's nine of these books in the front row. You can have it for free. And I think it's the most practical book I've read on what mentoring is. But Kettler says this in the book, Mentoring is a relationship where I take what I am to help you be all that God wants you to be. We need to mentor. And I'm going to tell you this, mentoring is so broken across the generations, you actually have to search for it. I didn't realize this until I was 42 years old, and a businessman in town who was a donor to the ministry here came up to me and said, I do a mentoring cohort with six to eight people, and I take them on a journey for two years, and I'm praying about maybe you joining this third cohort that I'm part of. And that two years changed my life. And I walked out, and I said to my mentor, Joe, I said, hey, Joe, that thing was so transformative to me, but now I feel lost because... I'm not part of your group anymore. And of course, he's like, dude, you know my phone number, right? And I went to dinner with him Thursday night. Right? He's still my mentor. But I said, you know, I need to go find a new mentor every year of my life because I have different questions I'm asking at different ages, you know? And he looked at me and says, Jason, I'm 55. Good luck. I've been looking for those people my whole life. 
I said, what do you mean? Mentors are hard to find. I, I had this conversation with my wife, Jen. You guys know Jen. Jen is purely the greatest human being I've ever known. Like, like saint. I mean, the story of my life will be the journey with Jennifer Jans. Okay? So I said, I said, hey, said, hey babe, when's, when's the last time you were mentored? She goes, what do you mean? Long story short, she said, sophomore in undergrad. Okay, she's 44 years old. The greatest woman I know has been without a mentor for 24 years. And I'm like, if anybody should be mentored, it's my wife. I mean, one of the greatest Christian women and leaders I know and has no mentor, then it's, it's got to be broken at all levels. But we see in the Bible, we see Aquila and Priscilla walking up to Paul and saying, hey, you don't quite know the doctrine. Get in here. Let's teach you something better. What do you teach? You teach the word and the ways of God, and it's life on life. Can I demystify mentoring for you? It doesn't need to be a curriculum. It doesn't need to be a book study. You just sit down with somebody who's younger than you and say, what questions are you asking right now about yourself and the world and God? And believe me, you'll have a two-hour conversation right there. How is it matched up? I believe it's, uh, the Bible pattern is the older teaches the younger. You see that in Titus? Okay. We see that in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul says, hey, I'm going to disciple Timothy. Then you take it to faithful men who can teach others also. That is this multi-generational way. And, you re- and I would encourage you to, when you think about mentoring, if you're in the younger three generations, the younger three stages of life, you should be reaching up and you should be reaching down. You should be getting mentorship from somebody, and you should be mentoring somebody, okay? I said this to Joe on Thursday night, and he said, Jason, I'm going to tell you right now, if there is a mentoring movement that is supposed to happen, chances are the boomers are probably not going to do it because culture has told them that they're basically done and worthless. You have to walk up and ring their doorbell. So, boomers, I'm ringing your doorbell today and saying, we need you, right? And I'm actually going to open this up right now and just ask the question. You know people in this congregation. You know something about them. In any generation, anybody would say, at this stage of my life, I sure would like to learn this from that person. Can you think of somebody you would like to learn something from in this church? How many can think of something? Raise your hand. Okay, say it out loud. I want you to say what you want to know, and I want to say who you want to learn it from. Go ahead. How to Fix My House by Baby Boomer Tom Hurst. Okay, very practical. Okay, speak more Swahili. From who? Anybody here who speaks Swahili? Anybody else? Come on, like 20 of you raise your hand. Let's go. You want to learn how to lead other women the way Val Garber does. That's, that's beautiful. Anybody else? Okay. 
Three or four more. Anybody have a problem with their finances, financial management in this room? Raise your hand. <laughs> Liars? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Rhodes? <clears throat> well, you were raising the financial management hand. Anybody else? I want to learn how to fix a proper life Okay. Who would be somebody you want to learn uh, how to raise kids? Re- name it out. Just shout it out. Jason, Juan Pena, Scott family. Okay. Who do you want to learn how to be a godly leader from? Brian McCoy. Who would you want to learn how to pray from? Patty, Antoinette. Okay. So a lot of names were mentioned. So I'm going to tell you, go ring that bell after church service today. Go ring that bell and say, I want you to teach me that thing. And I'm going to close with a special challenge to the baby boomers in the room. Speaking frankly, uh, I, I really want to help you think differently about the stage of your life because I don't think anywhere in culture uh, I can tell, is, is preaching this loudly. We are in a culture that worships youth, wrongly so, denies the reality of death, and we have devalued age. And this has created an insecurity in anybody over the age of 60. We can't even ask anybody their age anymore in this culture. That's how bad it is. It is considered impolite to ask somebody how old they are. Why? Because ageism. Because people in their careers, that hurts them. The church should be a place where we can all tell everybody our age. And if you're over 60, you got a better seat at the table. Like, you have wisdom. You have uh, God's grace on your life. We have segregated the ages in our churches, in our society, in our communities. This book that we're reading in our basement group on how to live forever talks about the first retirement communities that were birthed in Phoenix, Arizona, Youngtown, Arizona. And it was a retirement-only community uh, put out by a guy named Ben Schliefer. No kids were allowed. No schools were built. And then Del Webb came in and started the Sun City movement. When he launched the Sun City subdivision in Phoenix, Arizona, 100,000 people lined up the first day to buy a home. Because it was, it was this idea that you're going to go uh, right into the sunset of your life and you're just going to have fun the last 20 years. Largest traffic jam in Arizona state history is when they started that retirement center. And by the way, there's dozens of those communities across the U.S. now. And there's a tragic story of a kid who was removed from their home and his grandparents wanted to bring this kid into their home and the, and the community protested and cast the kid out. There's no kid culture. We have glorified retirement as a playland of leisure instead of the prime legacy years. We arbitrarily put down this age of retirement at 65 years old. Do you know where that number comes from? Where we got 65 from? 
the eligibility age of the Prussian military pension enacted in the 1870s by Otto von Bismarck, who was convinced that the state would never have to pay a single pension because no one was going to live past 65. That's where America got its 65 age of retirement because when Social Security began, we had to pick a date for eligibility. But now it's been ensconced in American culture that when you turn that age, you can turn off the jets. This is the Youngstown, the Youngtown uh, subdivision that has actually been lodged in the American ideal. But John Gardner, who served under Johnson as the only Republican in his cabinet, Johnson started PBS, or, or Gardner started PBS, he started Medicare. He was all about the age population, and he said there was a cruel and ironic contradiction in the lives of older people. They could look forward to more and more years of life and health Yet never before have they been so firmly shouldered out of every significant role in life, in the family, in the world of work, and in the community. The older generation is put off to the shoulder. So, this is a problem. I just want to say, in the Church of Jesus Christ, in the new family of Jesus, we need a completely different MO with our baby boomers. Like baby boomers, we need you at full throttle, helping as many people as you possibly can. Try to, try to get out of work as much as you can so you can be here and be with our CGs and mentor the younger generation and do what God has called you to do. You must be focused on the younger generations. So Moses, if you go back to the story, okay, he is sitting there. He sees the problem. If we don't train the next generation, right, we're going to be hosed again in the wilderness so he writes Deuteronomy, and it was in my study of Deuteronomy that this thing really started to take root for me. Deuteronomy means, these are the words. And I found in the book of Deuteronomy, my challenge to the baby boomers, and, and even those in the 40 to 60 generation, the Gen Xers in the room, to start thinking about legacy. Not just living a lifestyle of legacy, but actually depositing a legacy before you die. We are not going to deny death in this church. It happens. Get ready for your death. So I see in Deuteronomy five elements of a legacy, and I would like every boomer to write these down. In my, there we go. The first one is this. Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4, Moses rehearses the story of the people of God. You need to write down your story. This can be one page. This could be a book. This could be a little video but it is your biography and how God has worked in your life and his work with his, that you've seen him do with his people. You must write your story or record your story for the generations. I would hope that when a Providence boomer passes on, that after their funeral there's a book table out back and we get the story of that person's life. Write it down. Then secondly is the values. From chapters 5 through 30 in, in Deuteronomy, he basically rehearses the law, he gives curses and blessings. He says, this is the expectations of God for you, and this is how you should live. You have already lived 60 years. We need to know what values that you have based upon God's word. And then third was succession. In chapter 31, he set up Joshua to take his place. You cannot die until someone's going to carry on what you do. Tom Hurst, you cannot die until you pass on your tools and your know-how to another generation of people who do the beautiful things you do in this church. 
and then worship. Moses wrote a song. You may not be a lyricist, you may not be a musician, then you pick the one song in all of Christian liturgy that says, this is the song that beats my heart and I want to pass this song on, and then blessing. For an entire chapter, he gives a blessing to each one of the 12 tribes that's individualized blessing. Your job is to leave a blessing for your children, your children's children, the, the church people that you've done the journey with. The Bible says in Psalm 102, 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. I talked with the boomer this week, and his son's not doing well, his adult son. And I said, you know, can I encourage you to still write down your life story? Because your son may never read the book, but maybe his grandson will, your grandson will, your great-grandson will, that you have recorded for a generation what meant something to you. A society grows great when old people plant trees under whose shade they will never sit. Live a lifestyle of legacy. Now, if, if, if you're human like me, you're sitting out there today and you're going, you're over, actually you're overcome with fear and insecurity. I got nothing to say. I've got nothing to give. I've got so far to go. I've made so many mistakes. I'm not a good discipler, blah, blah, blah. So as a pastor, I have to put up with your lame excuses and tell you they don't work. <laughs> Stop it. Because, like, you're the only one who has made mistakes in your life, right? You I don't know a boomer who doesn't complain about the state of the world. Well, then do something to fix it. Go out there and help bring the world to the place that honors God. And for those of you that say, man, I just have mistake after mistake. After mistake. I talked to a boomer yesterday, and he said, one whole chapter is going to be how I effed up. And I said, that's probably the chapter I want to read. <laughs> right? Because I don't want to fall into those traps. But even if you have some glorious failures, let me encourage you. The story of the gospel is that God takes all that crap and he redeems it for generations that generations can be encouraged by how you recovered from that failure. John Newton was the captain of a slave trading ship and invested in the slave trade. And he encounters Jesus and changes his life around. And on his tombstone, his legacy is, once an infidel and libertine, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith, he had long labored to destroy. What a legacy! beautiful out of his mistakes. Brene Brown says, when we deny our stories, they define us. But when we own our stories, we get to write a brave new ending. Owning our stories is standing in our truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ redeems all that stuff. And out of this seeming wreckage comes these flowers that grace future generations. You have the gospel. It's not a gospel of first chances. It's not a gospel of second chances. It's actually not a gospel of 100 chances. Actually, it's a gospel of zero chance. You never had a chance. You never had a chance at this life. But God in his grace looked upon you. You don't serve a God of second chances. You serve a faithful God who, when you never had a chance, he came and gave you the chance. For you actually to live a life on this earth for 70, 80 years and make a long-term impact. So in this place, we pass on this legacy. 
Joshua becomes the leader. He takes them into the promised land. Verse 7, they served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Verse 8, and Joshua, the son of Nun, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him. And in verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who, what, did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Joshua flubbed the ball. The guy who did the conquest of Canaan did not live a lifestyle of legacy. And they suffered. The children of Israel suffered through the period of the judges, up and down and up and down. You know why? Somebody was too busy doing, not doing the main thing. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask Tom Hurst, Kim Hurst, Brian McCoy, and Antoinette Johnson to come up. I just have heard the stories. Walker, if you can give me a mic. Um, <coughs> I know we're a little over, but I wanted to, you to hear these stories. Two stories that bubbled up that I've heard about in our congregation of this thing that just kind of happened rather organically. Uh, Brian has mentored Antoinette, and Kim Hurst is mentoring Myra Salazar. And I also want to ask them a brief question before we close so you can actually see it kind of fleshed out. Brian, uh, it might have couldn't be here today, but Kim will speak for her. Brian and I were asked by Antoinette. She rang our doorbell and said, uh, would you guys be my dad, my dads? And that was five years ago, I think. And now we go on daddy dates every quarter. We walk into the restaurant. Antoinette always says, these are my dads, as we walk in. <laughs> and then I, I hold Brian's hand and smile, you know. <laughs> Uh, and I guess Myra Salazar sat in a basement group, sat in a basement group and said, um, I don't understand anything that's happening in this basement group. And you asked her, how can I help you? And she said, can I just meet with you one-on-one? -on -one? So I want, I want you to talk for just one minute about your relationship with Myra and the mutual uh, reciprocity that's happening there. Well, I don't want to really speak for Myra because let praise be from another's lips. And she was really wanting to be here today. And she told me that. She said, I would love to talk to people about it. But it's been such a blessing to me because she has been the fan that has fanned the embers of a kind of a, a dying, uh, going to the word and loving it. Because of that, I'm old. Nobody wants to hear from me. And when I'm surrounded with millennials, it's like, God, they don't want to hear from me. You know, I just, she enjoys spending time with me. She's learned so much and I appreciate that. But I have been blessed hmm. more than she has. And you guys meet every week usually? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to blow up ageism here. How old are you, Kim? 66. Okay. Are you afraid to say that publicly? No. Great. Let's give Kim a hand. I don't meet with him regularly, but we, like, I just call him and say, I'm coming over. <laughs> and That's I what just, you do to all of us, Antoinette. <laughs> but not, not especially him. Um, I come to his house, and I say, like, he'll say, I'm not doing anything. I say, I just need your help, Dad, and I just need you to 
to be with me and to sit with me in pain or if it's just like fixing my tire on my bike or uh, just being with me. Like I can sit, I laid on his porch one day with him, just laid there and I was like, this, I've never done this before. Mm. <laughs> and I just feel like he is a joy to be around, but most people don't see that like because of his age. Um, but I enjoy hanging out with him. Mm. Uh, how <laughs> Just talk about... How old are you, Brian? 66. Hold the mic up. 66. 66. And uh, how has the relationship benefited you? Um, you know, Antoinette has a, a heart of flesh. And mine sometimes gets hard-boiled. And so that softness, um, God makes my heart soft through her. Amen. Um, when I'm with Antoinette, um, I'm always conscious of not reverting to my uh, pre-Christian self. Um, I'm sort of on my best behavior, keeping an eye on my own <laughs> nonsense, you know? Unlike when some, some of my other friends in the church and I get together. Um, um, but basically, it's just uh, a lot of... Uh, Horse sense being passed along, you know, hand-to-eye hand coordination, fine motor skills, um, obnoxious weeds, difficult business relationships. How does she make you feel? Well, she makes me, I understand that she loves me unconditionally, which I don't get from my first daughter. <laughs> um, but she's only 18, so she gets a pass for the next few years anyhow. Mm -hmm. Um, Antoinette actually helps me with my relationship with Zoe. Hmm. The difficult bumps that we have to navigate. Hmm. Let's give them a hand. <laughs> All right, I'm way over, but my last thing I want to give you today is this. Do you want a mentor in your life in some area? Do you want a mentor? If you want a mentor, I actually want you to stand up. Say, I want a mentor in my life. Stand up. Okay. All right, you may be seated. How many of you would be willing to mentor somebody if they walked up and rang your doorbell and said, would you mentor me? Would you stand up? Okay, it all can happen right in this room. We don't need a church program. We don't need all that, right? This can happen right here. So I hope after the service today, you start ringing some doorbells. Now, some of you might get overwhelmed with people. Let me encourage you, uh, small group it. Say 6 o'clock Friday morning, I'll be over here at IHOP, and everybody shows up, shows up. You'll find out who really wants it and who's going to pay the price to be mentored well. Let's stand together. We are going to sing a closing song. During the closing song, our prayer team will be up here. I want to address the fact that perhaps you have this fear, this insecurity that's been brought onto you by culture, by the church, by others, by yourself. That if you say, hey, I need to step into this space, either to reach out for a mentor in my life or to be mentored, our prayer team will be up front, and they would like to pray with you as we close uh, our message today and we sing a song together.